Last Sunday was my first Sunday as your new to you pastor. I still have the new pastor smell. And we looked through, uh, we looked at the urgency of God's grace through the book of Hebrews. Newsflash, God loves you just as you are right now. But there's more. God loves you so much that God's unwilling to leave you just as you are right now. God's love is transforming us from the inside out. In the church, we call that sanctifying grace. Sanctifying us, making us holy before God from the inside out. You may have gone home last Sunday after worship and had lunch or, or an afternoon snack with a friend or a neighbor, and, and maybe they asked about the new-to-you pastor on this end of, of Glebe Road. And you might have said something like, like all of us at Walker Chapel, he's extremely good-looking, and, and he takes God's grace seriously. He's really the total package. And then this past Wednesday night, I was meeting with our leadership board, and they asked me, they said, Pastor Tier, tell us, what is at the forefront of your ministry? And I looked at the room, and I said, God's grace. God's, whether you like it or not, love for each of us. That's what drives me in my ministry. So to go from grace last Sunday to Romans 7 today with sin, sin with a capital S, can feel a bit jarring. Last week we had God's unwavering love, and today we have, well, we are wretched, wretched people, according to St. Paul. So maybe that same friend might ask you this, this afternoon, how was worship? Is that new to you, pastor, still have the new pastor smell? And you might say something, well, God's grace is important, but today he chose to preach on sin. So now the jury is still out. I said a moment ago that we're going to spend all of summer in the book of Romans exploring the urgency of God's amazing grace. If you weren't here last Sunday, let me put it as plainly as I can. God's grace is a gift. God's grace is more than an I love you just the way you are pat on the head. God's grace is how God works inside of each of us and how God is working for each of us. Retired United Methodist Bishop Will Willimon puts it like this. This is God intruding into your life, drawing closer to you before you even know that God is at work. God's love comes to each of us transforming us from the inside out, doing what all of our attempts at religiosity fail to accomplish. As I was preparing the sermon, I was reading a book this week titled Preaching Romans. I thought, well, if we're going to spend all summer in Romans, I might want to learn how to preach it. And in the introduction to this book, Dr. Scott McKnight writes, that many pastors, and I'm going to add congregations, have become afraid to preach through Romans because they quickly find out that they are wading into deep waters. Friends, we are going to do our best over the coming weeks to not be afraid when the water appears to be coming close to our heads or even when it's over our heads. So this week we're starting with sin. Sin with a capital S. 
St. Paul uses his, himself as an example to make the point that our state as humanity is, is pitiful. If you disagree, that's fine. I'm not saying it. St. Paul is saying it. We know what we should do, yet we do not do those things. And to make matters worse, we know the things that we should not do, and yet we do those things. We continue to try to think positively about ourselves. We end up trading phrases like, I'm not okay, you're not okay, for I'm okay, you're okay. All the while knowing that none of us are okay, yet we won't admit it, and that's not okay. I mean, color me guilty. I will be the first to step up and say that my ministerial focus on God's grace runs the risk of ignoring our need for, for grace. And our need for grace stems from what author Francis Spufford calls our human propensity to muck things up. That's muck with an M, not another letter. Spufford might have used something else. If you don't believe me, I want you to think for a moment and look back on human history, and you will begin to see the ways in which we have mucked things up. We harm one another at a macro level. There are wars and famine, environmental catastrophes. We prop up institutions on the, on the backs of the marginalized. And then there's the, the micro level ways that we harm one another. We ignore the needs of our neighbors. We place our comforts over the needs of others. And we tend to silo ourselves away from our communities. Sin begets sin, which begets sin. Go back again for a moment and think at the, the macro level. The narcissism of the Third Reich led to an anti-Semitic posture, a.k.a. sin, which led to the Holocaust. Again, sin, which then led to the sins of World War II. Even in our response to sin, we turn towards sin. World War II is, a, is low-hanging fruit. It's an easy example so I want you to think about the last time someone sinned against you. What was your response? Was it to forgive 77 times as prescribed by Jesus? Or was it more sin? Sin, my friends, is frankly what we're really good at. Our self-serving biases move us to take responsibility for our successes all the while passing the blame off to someone else for the ways in which we harm one another and turn away from God. Our successes, no matter how big or how small, become little g gods, all the while the one in, whom's, in whose image we were all created begins to take a back seat. We don't mean for this to happen, St. Paul writes, but inevitably it happens. We know what we should do, and we know what we should not do, and yet we always choose the latter. St. Paul rambled on for nine verses about the predicament that we all find ourselves in, while Taylor Swift, singer, songwriter, sums it up in one sentence. She writes, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem, it's me. Given the free will to choose between God and sin, to quote our United Methodist Communion Liturgy, which you all read perfectly last week, we often turn away from God. 
if our love fails. It's a hard pill to swallow. Not a single person in this room or watching online wants to admit in the ways that they've harmed one another and turned away from God. And this is precisely why the word sin is disappearing from the church's vocabulary. Or when the word is used, we often use it to point out the sins of, of those people, those other bad people. But sin is more than the ways that you and I mess up. It's more than giving someone the bird as you turn on to Glebe Road trying to go to brunch. Fleming Rutledge, Reverend, Reverend Fleming Rutledge, she's a retired Episcopal preach, preacher, and many refer to her as the Beyonce of the Episcopal Church. In her book, The Crucifixion, The Death of Jesus Christ, she writes, sin is not so much a collection of individual misdeeds as it is an active agency bent upon imprisonment and death. Sin, she writes, is the utter undoing of God's purposes for our lives. The misdeeds that we see happen in our own lives and in our community are signs of that agency at work, but they're not the thing itself. The things we do or the things we leave undone are but a symptom of humanity's bentness toward forgetting what our holy scriptures remind us that all of us are created in God's image. And somehow along the way, we have slipped to the point of not being able to admit it or, or recognize how we betray that image in which we were created. The problem with our sin, again, to quote our favorite Taylor, Taylor Swift, is that at tea time, everybody agrees. Everybody agrees that everybody else is the problem and yet that is a symptom of our sin. The late American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr wrote that one of the hazards of our Christian life is that the better we get, the more successful we are as, as Christians or how well we do church, it places us in the position of pride and exhibitionism. He writes, I give myself in one moment to the cause of the word of the Lord and then in the next, that I haven't given myself at all, but that the self stands outside of this self-giving and asks, does anybody notice me? Does anybody see my virtues? Will they give me proper credit? We all want our good deeds to stand out from the crowd, especially when others are, are watching us. We want everyone else to see that we are not the problem and that somebody else is. As you're new to you, you past, new to you pastor, one of the toughest things is believing in the grace that I have been sent here to preach. Instead, I worry about my performance. I worry that you can see the slides that they're downloaded on time and on the screen. What are you thinking when we change the order of worship on you? What will you think of me? How does my, my hair look? Am I standing in the right spot in the sanctuary when I preach? Should I stand here on the floor? Should I stand in the pulpit? Should I stand in the chancel? Should I be moving around the room more? Will any of you notice how many smart people I quoted in my sermon this morning? 
Did any of you get the Taylor Swift reference? I'm going to be worried about that for the rest of the day. But the truth is, like Paul and like all of you, I do not fully understand or control my own actions. I am ba as bound to sin as the last lady and the next guy. But, and it's a big but, so you know it doesn't lie, I'm not here to convince you that I am good. I am here to declare to you that God is good, even to confounded sinners like me and even you. Friends, the key to our salvation, the thing that makes us right before God, that holiness that is inside of us that pushes away our sin, is, is, is not ignoring our need for divine inter intervention. The key to our salvation is that in spite of our inability to follow God's top ten, the Ten Commandments, which Jesus then distilled down to his top two, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. Your whole person. And the other was love your neighbor as yourself, which means you have to love your neighbor and you have to love yourself. What frees us from that? What, 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 what is ours when we fail to love ourselves, when we fail to love our neighbors, when we fail to love God? Is that God's grace is still ours. God's grace is freeing us. It has freed us from the finding our identity in our good deeds, God's grace frees us from our sins, from, de from defining who we are. Because in God's grace, we find our new identity. It begun, begins with being called beloved. Then we are transformed, and finally we are sanctified. In verse 24 of our scripture reading, St. Paul asks, who will deliver me from my sin? The short answer, the Sunday school answer, is Jesus. The long answer, it's Jesus. The one who took upon himself the weight of the sin of the world to the point of death, but who then, three days later, folded up his burial clothes, left them behind, and walked out of a borrowed tomb. God's grace delivers us just as we are, sin and all. So that then when we say, I'm not okay, you're not okay, God replies with, and that's okay. Because we are forgiven and free from our sin, the church, us gathered here on Sunday morning, sitting at home, or maybe even sleeping in from time to time, the church becomes the herald of this good news. Week after week, we sing the same old song, and the urgency of our proclamation replaces judgment and condemnation with good news. Good news like, for God so loved the world that we, all of us, are free. God has done for us that which we could never do for ourselves, and that is to love you and to love me, just as we are sin and all. Amen.